I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. On Monday, Pope Benedict celebrated his 85th birthday with a Bavarian sing-along, while in the United Kingdom, a Christian voluntary organisation is taking the government to court over its new regulations allowing food packaging to carry religious signs. An order of nuns in Sligo, the Daughters of Wisdom, is fearful for the future of its services to more than 200 people with intellectual disabilities because of budget cuts. While in the US last week, a Pew Research Centre survey reported that almost 40% of the public say the candidates in the presidential election are talking too much about their faith. With the Eucharistic Congress getting ever nearer, quite a few books about the Eucharist have appeared lately. There are in fact so many that if we tried to deal with them all, we'd have no time to discuss anything else on the programme. So we thought the fairest thing to do was to pick three from three different publishers. We have The Word is Flesh and Blood, The Eucharist and Sacred Scripture, edited by Vivian Boland OP and Thomas McCarthy OP, that published by Dominican Publications. Eucharist and the Living Earth by Hugo O'Donnell, a Salesian that's published by the Columba Press. While they were at table by Sister Anna Burke is a Veritas publication. To discuss them, we're joined now by the Secretary General of the Eucharistic Congress, Father Kevin Doran. Kevin, welcome back to the programme. Thank you very much. Three very different books, but many of them have concurrent themes at the same time. That's right. I, in fact, I, I was uh, delighted that they were so different because, in in a sense, trying to look at them and read them together was made much easier. Sister Anna Burke's book is is a, a, I described it as almost like a prayer book, not not a book of prayers, but a book which uh, helps to support people. And uh, then the, the the book on on Eucharist and the Living Earth is is quite uh, focused on. Um, the whole area of the environment and respect for the environment, and then the the, the one the word uh, and and the Eucharist, the word is flesh and blood. That's that's quite an academic work on with a scriptural background. So they're quite different. Now it's a fest shrift. Tell us what that is. It's like a birthday cake, except it's a book. A series of authors come together to honour. An author, in this case, it's uh, Wilfred Harrington, the well-known uh, Dominican scripture scholar, on the occasion of his 85th birthday. So he's obviously the same age as Pope Benedict. And uh, they've all written uh, chapters or articles within the book uh, on different aspects of Eucharist, but with a particularly scriptural slant, because obviously they're honouring somebody who is a scripture scholar. The book really divides itself into four sections. Uh, it talks about um, uh, Eucharist as assembly, it talks about listening to the word. It talks about uh, celebrating the uh, the Eucharist or the sacrament and sacrifice. And then it talks about being uh, sent out on uh, mission. I, I, I suppose in a sense, if I had any slight regret, and it's just a slight regret, would be that uh, we came to the conclusion at the Congress preparation that assembly or gathering was so important in, in setting the tone for the listening to the word and the breaking of bread, that in a way it would have been nice to have a little bit more about it in in the book. I, I thought uh, what was very interesting was the idea, uh, and it's in um, uh, Daniel Harrington's uh, chapter in relation to the Holy Spirit. 
he talks about uh, the Eucharist involving what he calls a double epiclesis. You know, kids. Tell will, us what an epiclesis yeah, is. Yeah, an epiclesis is where you call down the Holy Spirit or invoke the Holy Spirit. And, um, you, you know, most people will associate that with the blessing of the bread and wine so that it becomes the body and blood of Christ. It's it's what the term epiclesis is normally used to refer to. But he points out that in our Eucharistic prayers, there is a sort of a second epiclesis which follows the consecration of the Mass, which is the invoking of the same Holy Spirit, that we might become one body, one spirit in Christ. So in a sense, the transformation of the bread and wine is part of what the Eucharistic celebration is about. And the other part is the transformation of those who participate now, Hugh O'Donnell, in the introduction to his book, Eucharist and Living Earth, yeah. he sort of says you're leaving out the cosmic element, but you don't agree with that. I find it very difficult to think of respect for the environment apart from respect for the people whose environment it is. And say, in anything that I've looked at, say, for instance, when I was in the Scouts, we were always told to kind of leave place the way we found it or better. And it was obviously because it was a place that other people had to come into afterwards. An awful lot of the destruction of the environment, you know, the real problem with it is the impact it has on the lives and, and cultures of people. So for, for that reason, I, I think the communion with, with one another implies respect for the environment very definitely. And um, Hugh makes the point, we cannot praise the creator and rubbish the earth. That's right, absolutely. I would think of the environment as the gift that we've received and, and respect for the for the gift and respect for the giver go hand in hand. And it's very interesting when you look at Eucharist, actually, uh, and, and all the liturgy, all the sacramental liturgies of the church, they all very much, um, they're rooted in the earth. You know, I mean, bread and wine, the work of human hands, the water that we use uh, for baptism, the oil that we use for anointing, they're all very earthy things. And he also talks about the earth and, and there's several references to the animals and the early Irish saints. We've, we've lost a bit of that. They we, were. We have. And actually, it's one of the things that I find fascinating because I spent a number of years as parish priest in Glendalough. And uh, in the imagery, we, we had a lovely uh, icon of St. Kevin with uh, done by Sister Aloysius McVeigh. And, uh, you know, you had the blackbird associated very much with, with the poem about St. Kevin and the blackbird and the deer and so on. And... Um, when I when I sort of looked at those things, I found that there was a sort of a close similarity between the image that people have of St. Kevin and the image we have of Francis of Assisi. And, uh, you know, the scripture scholars will say when you go back to the beginning of the, the scriptures, one of the things you see in, in Genesis is that there was this great harmony in the whole of creation. And coming to the third book then, while they were at table, Anna Burks, there are two parts here, prayers at table and stories at table. Yeah. I I found this um, fascinatingly the, 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 a number of things I suppose in particular uh, prayers at table it's really uh, an invitation to look at different elements of the mass again something that we were trying to do with the with the Eucharistic Congress the gathering the listening the offering the going forth on mission at the end of each chapter in the book there there is a kind of a uh, what you might call almost a rhythmical prayer, which is very much like what we used to call the divine praises at benediction, you know, bless be God, bless be his holy name. She shows me in this that it's possible to take what you might call the set prayers and and to treat them as a as a sort of a springboard for our own reflection so that you don't necessarily have to be limited to the words. The words are not meant to be limiting, they're meant to be empowering. It, it reminds me, in fact, of... of a, 
of a story when when my father was quite elderly and just before he died, the, the Pope uh, announced that there were going to be five new mysteries at the Rosary, which we now know as the Mysteries of Light. And my father said to me one day uh, when he was in the hospital, he said, um, can you find out, he said, what the, f- the five mysteries are? He says, I, I have four of them, but he said, I can't uh, remember what the fifth one was. But he said, in the meantime, I've put in one of my own. And it was the storm... The, the, the calming of the storm on the sea of, of of Galilee, which probably spoke very much to the experience he was in at the time. But it, it, again, for me, it, it, I think that's the kind of thing Sister Anna is doing as well. She's saying, you know, um, allow the prayer uh, to to act for you rather than rather than to limit you. So are these books that you would recommend as people uh, prepare themselves for the Eucharistic Congress? Oh, absolutely. I think each one has a, has a, has has a, an important uh, gift to offer. And to be perfectly honest, you know, in preparing uh, for something like the programme, you read through them fairly quickly. And I actually look forward to having an opportunity to read through them again in more detail. I keep telling people this programme is making my mind work in a different way. And yeah. certainly there's lots of food for thought here. Rumours abounding again that you're flying people in or bussing people in in an effort to boost the numbers. Is there any truth in no, that? No, I mean, the, the interesting thing about that is that we have obviously an international congress and, and part of our mandate is to make it as truly accessible as we can. Part of our volunteer programme uh, has been to invite people uh, to provide accommodation in their homes for pilgrims coming from poorer economies. And um, some of them will also be uh, assisted in terms of a small contribution towards their subsistence. I suppose they come into, you know, somewhere in the region of, you know, 15 or 16 who will get subsistence and about 200 will get accommodation in host families. Okay, Father Kevin, no doubt we'll speak to you again. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks very much, Eileen. In the Buddhist tradition, we speak of consciousness in terms of seat. Seats. There is a seat of understanding in us. There is a seat of love, compassion in us. And if we know how to water, to nourish the seat of understanding and love in us, they will grow every day. That was Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who's been touring and packing out venues in Ireland, explaining the power of mindfulness. What is mindfulness? Reporter Claire McCormack went along to his talk at the National Convention Centre last week, and she joins us now. Claire, tell us about this evening. Um, well, first of all, the name Thich Nhat Hanh is quite difficult to pronounce. So for the sake of, inter- of the interview, we could call him Master Thai, meaning teacher in Vietnamese. And it's the name affectionately used by his students. So as soon as I walked into the auditorium and saw the packed out audience, I knew I was in the presence of something quite extraordinary. Master Thai sitting centre stage with um, 50 of his monastics, the nuns and brothers both sides of him. And uh, the audience sat really still and silent, almost meditating themselves. A lot of them have never heard Thai teach before. It was um, educational. I learned a lot about it. Tell us. Mindfulness basically means to be present in the moment that you're in, to be in the here and now. And by living that way and by using certain practices of mindfulness, um, you can use the energy that you get when you're in that present moment and use it to heal and to understand yourself better. And that's the main, his key message. And he himself doesn't do interviews, I understand. He doesn't do interviews himself. So I was very fortunate to meet two of his disciples 
uh, Brother Spirit. And first of all, I met with Sister Dedication, who we'll hear in my report. And just to apologise for the slight background noise because there was um, the air conditioning in the background. Mindful walking is to become aware of our steps on the earth, to really be in contact, um, to really be aware of that contact between our feet and the earth and to be open up to the experience of walking through a park, down a street, <laughs> across the underground platform, wherever we might be, and to relax. I, my practice is to relax myself into that moment and to bring my attention to, to, my, to my steps. So by coming back to a completely physical experience of, of walking, I really arrive and I can really open myself up to the people around me, to the nature around me, to the noise around me, and I have a certain peace uh, within it and a, and a joy just to be walking. I know for myself when I use a laptop um, or any other electronic gadget, uh, after a while I notice that I'm not really aware of my body anymore and it's kind of like uh, my attention has been sucked into the screen. And I think many people have that experience. Or even with a mobile phone, sometimes our, our head goes to one side and we get all hunched over and, and we're not really aware that we're there. Maybe we're not even aware that we're walking along the street. And uh, our practice is, is just to, to bring the attention back again and again in a very simple, light way just to what is actually happening in the here and now, which is that we're alive, mm. we're here, we're breathing. to work for the BBC actually in London and uh, I used to practice mindfulness in the newsroom and uh, in doing so I realized that it wasn't such a good environment for me and I, I, I had a deep wish to live a life that is meaningful where I can be the best I can be and where I can really serve the world and uh, transform what's not so beautiful about myself and, and offer the best of myself and so this path of training as a monastic naturally appealed and I actually have uh, as many challenges and I travel as much as a, as a nun as I ever did as a BBC journalist. So the, the chant we offered tonight is um, invoking the name of uh, Avalokiteshvara and that uh, isn't exactly a historical person it's a kind of uh, it's more like an archetype it's, uh, it represents the capacity we each have to generate compassion compassion doesn't isn't just some abstract thing that comes from nowhere it's actually when we're aware of and in touch with our own pain first of all then compassion naturally flows and arises and then we have the capacity to become aware of the suffering that's all around us and and generate the energy of compassion for for others so that's uh, 
that's what we're doing when we're, when we're offering that chant. We're entering into a kind of um, a, a concentration uh, of uh, compassion and offering that to, to ourselves and, and to the whole world. Brother Spirit and before that Sister Dedication talking about mindfulness to Claire McCormack. And Claire, you were impressed on the night. Has it stayed with you? Yes, I actually walked home from the event aware more aware of my breathing and um taking my taking my time with my steps. It's it's not a secular thing, so even though I might incorporate aspects of it now into my own daily routine, I know I'm not giving up anything as I am a, I'm a Catholic I'm not going to give up anything or I'm not taking on any new beliefs um, it's a secular system it was so paramount from the amount of people that were at the event Do you know it's definitely something that people are are using and tapping into to find different ways to find peace within themselves um, as the, the grips of Catholicism have levelled off to a certain respect Claire McCormack Thank you. A red cloche hat, red lipstick, red nails, eyes pooled in sadness. I sat living a lie, and I knew it. Words dribbling from my mouth, a cigarette pinched between V fingers, a pint glass by my side. I lied and lied and lied. That was journalist and psychotherapist Christina Rehill reading from her second collection of poems, Soul Burgers, which documents her personal journey from addiction to rehabilitation. Written over 10 years, the book explores the difficulties faced by those who feel suicidal or depressed, while also highlighting a positive story of recovery. Rona Tarrant spoke to Christina last month at the book's launch in the Irish Museum of Modern Art. She began by asking her about her low points as an addict? How did I get to that low point? Um, It started very easily with social drinking that I enjoyed enormously. I went to London, I led a very kind of bohemian life there, I worked with Vogue magazine, I was in a very electric and creative environment where alcohol and drugs seemed to just accentuate any um, enjoyable experience. But I then started to recognise something around the drinking when I wasn't, it wasn't getting me to the places that I wanted it to get to, and yet I was getting, I was dependent. And it was a horrific moment of realising that this alcohol was kind of, it had turned on me. It was like a magic potion that had once, once worked to take me off somewhere into somewhere higher and better. And in fact, every time I was taking it, it was a Jekyll and Hyde thing, that it, now I was taking it and it was taking me down somewhere. And yet I was physically addicted to the stuff without knowing You know, without, I mean, relationships were getting ruined and I was losing jobs and I had to move around a lot. But I just kept doing a geographical, change the partner, change the school, change the job, change, you know, change anything other than myself. Splintered, sodden, soaking, drinking, talking, smoking, a moment hoping. A flicker in those puddled eyes, forgetting my life's a pack of lies. Food straight on my plate. No more drinking. No more talking. Numbed at last. Veiled future curtained past. 
No more lies needing masks. My partner said to leave. I didn't want to stay. I didn't want to leave. Who cares, I thought. Not me. It wasn't until I came into recovery, having tried every external changing, that I was told of the rotten, this starts with you. It starts with you changing you. And that was the beginning where I realised, OK, uh, this thing, the, these drugs have got me into a terrible mess. I cannot use them anymore without feeling an utter sense of kind of despair and self-loathing. And I don't want to keep feeling like that. I was lost. I was lost inside myself. Um, I didn't know. I recognised that I didn't know. And that, I think, was probably the beginning of my healing, is that I didn't know that I didn't know. And the Rotman helped me realise that you're now going to know that you're lost. And I, I then thought, oh, I, it became a curiosity for me. And I, before I went into the Rutland, I was reading about Virginia Woolf and a lot about the interior, the interior life. And I just sort of thought, gosh, that's, it is fascinating. And psychology always interested me. And I just thought, gosh, well, maybe now is the time, you know, to take off the fashion gear and take off the external celebrations of life and, you know, go inside and let's have a look at this kind of mythical internal world. And I made that my, my journey. I made that an artistic odyssey and I then start to write about it and um, love it, love it so much to the point that I came, became a recluse for the best part of ten years. There was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And then as though a plug untied, draining ache I'd never cried. I'm hurt, I uttered like a helpless child. We're listening, you said, as my denial died. Love. Love is God. God is love. But it's easy to say that. The question is, what is love? And my whole odyssey was about discovering what love isn't. And it was only by discovering what love isn't that I, you know, it's a bit like the sculpture of David with Michelangelo. I had to chip away at all the blocks in that metaphorically and literally. I had to block away at all the, the blocks all the, to let go all of the external attachments, my notions of what I wanted as opposed to what I needed. And it was in that long journey, and that's why I needed so many guides. I needed so many people who had the experience and the wisdom. And the lineage, you know, every religion has a lineage. So I, had a, I found a Western lineage in Ireland through extraordinary people and, and learnt along the way exactly what love is. And that is the beauty. That was, you know, the mountaintop. And that is the mountaintop. I do know what love is. When giving is receiving, when running nowhere stops, when losing is beginning, and the grace of knowing that, magic flutes sing mid-air, smiles kiss our cheeks, rain is sun laughing out loud, lost gods dance in wonder, and the glorious glory of that.
Christina Rehill reading from Soulburger and it's a beautifully produced book which should give hope and encouragement to anyone caught in the trap of addiction. The best place to find it is on the website www.soulburgers.com. Before we go, next Wednesday in the Leopardstown Pavilion, there'll be a fundraising evening for Research MND, a charity set up by our colleague Colin Murray to support research into motor neurone disease. And on Sunday night on RTE1 television, Would You Believe follows the work of Teen Spirit, a Kerry-based initiative to inspire young people to connect with the Catholic faith. That's our programme for this week. If you'd like to get in touch, our phone number is 01208 Our email address is godslot at rte.ie and our postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. We'll be back next week at the same time. Gudjishin, Slán, Ispanacht. Because I gotta have faith. Mm-hmm.